This episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is highly advised. She wasn't moving anymore, and so I went over by where she was, and I told her that I was sorry, and I shot her in the head. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to What the Actual F. My name is Harmony, and I'll be your host here. So before we get started today, I just need to let you guys know that I do currently have a cold, so that might be pretty apparent throughout the episode. I have taken some medicine, so let's see if we can power through this podcast before it kicks in and I pass out on you. <laughs> Alright, with that, let's begin today's episode. <laughs> It's the most wonderful time of the year. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas. Okay, let's act like I never did that. All right, cool. Instead of just trying to set the mood for this case, I'm just going to go ahead and set the time frame. We're going to go back to December 24th, 2007. And right now, I'd like to welcome you to the city of Carnation, Washington. Carnation is a beautiful city outside of Seattle. It's quite small though, about a mile in size with just over 2,000 residents. Now according to the City of Carnation's very own website, which yes, they have one, um, it is the most productive agricultural region in the Northwest. So there you go, you learned something today. Now I'm pretty sure you didn't come to this podcast for me to sit here and tell you all about Carnation, Washington. But you did come here for me to tell you all about what happened on that Christmas Eve in Carnation. Given its small size, Carnation is a close-knit and family community where everybody knows everybody. The city will host annual holiday events for all of its community members. And at these events, the communities and neighbors all get together, so everyone really knows everybody there. The area is considered safe and a very good place to raise a family. Now obviously, like any other town in America, there is still crime. You get the random burglary and theft cases, but violent crimes are very, very rare. Unlike just 25 miles away where Seattle is, constantly flowing in the hustle and bustle of the city life, you're going to have a lot more crime. But in Carnation, violence was virtually unheard of. That was up until December 24th, 2007, the day that one of the worst murder cases in Washington state history hit Carnation. What did you do to try to stop this, Joe? I can't even say now. I tried everything that I could. At least nobody suffered. The way that it is, at least nobody suffered. So while everyone else in the town is preparing for Christmas and enjoying time with their families, around 5 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve, this 911 call comes in. <laughs> This phone call prompted the police to drive out to the 10-acre property that was owned by Judy and Wayne Anderson. Judy, who was 61 and worked for the United States Postal Service at the time, and Wayne, who was 60, worked as an engineer for Boeing. The two had three children, Scott, Mary, and Michelle. Michelle Anderson, who was 29 at the time, lived with her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, also 29, in a trailer on the property. So when police arrive, they encounter the gate, which happens to be locked. This prompts them, for some reason, to just not pursue any farther. 
So yeah, because this gate is locked, the police decide we're just not going to check it out and they go on their merry way. Sadly, the gate was locked because somebody was fully prepared for the police to show up. And because of this, they had already locked it. Last time I had seen Judy was on the 23rd and we had hugged because we knew that we weren't going to probably cross paths until the day after Christmas. On the 26th, I went to work, probably seven o'clock when I went into work and Judy wasn't there yet, which wasn't real strange. But by 7.30, she should have been there. And by about quarter to eight, there's no doubt in my mind that there is something very, very wrong. So here comes December 26th and Judy is not at work. For many people, the time between Christmas and New Year's is kind of a blur and you don't really work. As most people take this time off because they're visiting family and friends or you just have this off as a holiday. However, with Judy working at the post office, she did not have this time off. So when her best friend Linda realizes Judy didn't come into work and she hasn't called, she immediately heads out to Judy's house. Because this, this isn't like Judy at all. Oh, uh, by now I'm crying. I mean, I know there is something wrong, drastically wrong with my friend. Okay, wait, hold on. Back it back up to Christmas Eve. We are back at the residence of Judy and Wayne. We are surrounded by Christmas decorations. You can smell a Christmas roast. Judy is by the tree wrapping presents for her grandchildren while Wayne relaxes on the couch, just trying to get a little bit of time in before the kids arrive. Then suddenly, everything changes. This relaxed and joyous atmosphere is all of a sudden thrust into complete and utter chaos. Joseph and Michelle armed themselves and drove their pickup to the home of her parents. Once inside, Joseph distracted Judy while she was wrapping her Christmas gifts. Michelle then attempts to shoot her father. However, her gun jams. This is when Joseph shoots Wayne and then Judy. The two then drag Michelle's parents' bodies out to a shed on the property. They then carefully and meticulously clean the home up of any signs that a crime had occurred. This is when they both sit and wait for Michelle's older brother, Scott, his wife, Erica, and two children to arrive. This was unlocked and Judy always kept her house locked. And so I opened the door a little bit and I yelled, Judy, it's Linda. And there's no response. And so I opened the door farther and lean in and yelled, Judy, it's Linda, we're worried about you. I looked down and I could see a man is laying on the ground. About an hour later, Scott, Erica, Olivia, and Nathan arrive at the home. Because the couple had cleaned up before the family arrived, it didn't look as though anything had occurred. Just after the family gets settled in, Michelle appears. She immediately begins shooting at her brother, killing him instantly. Joseph then joins in and the two begin to shoot at Erica. Wounded, she manages to escape for a moment to place a brief 911 call. This is the call that you heard earlier. The connection only lasts for a few seconds and dispatchers hear what they believe sounds like arguing at a party. Joseph, however, was able to grab the phone from Erica and tore the batteries out of the receiver and then smashed it on the floor. He then turned to Erica and shot her, taking her life. Now I hate to tell you this part because it pains me so much to say this. After the couple killed Michelle's parents, her brother and his wife, they turned the guns on the two children. Joseph shot five-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan at the request of Michelle. 
Michelle didn't want any witnesses and, according to her, she believed that this would leave the children scarred for life because they had witnessed their parents being killed and, you know, she thought it was ultimately best for them if they just died along with their parents. So I'm pretty sure we are all in agreement that Michelle is just a true piece of shit. Now, as stated, police did come out because of this 911 call. But the gate to the property was locked and the officers decided because of this, they just shouldn't investigate any further. However, the gate was only locked because Michelle had realized that the 911 call connected and she should run out and lock it to stop the police from coming in. And I am fucking shocked, honestly, that that worked. Like she ran out there probably covered in blood still from killing everyone, locked it and ran back inside and just prayed that that stopped the police. And of course, it it did. You know, sadly, in half of these cases, I do have to tell you how much the police fail. The bodies were discovered two days later on December 6th when Judy's best friend and co-worker, Linda Feely, went to the home to see why she was absent from work that day. The house was unlocked and Judy always kept her house locked. And so I opened the door a little bit and I yelled, Judy, it's Linda and there's no response and so i open the door farther and lean in and yell judy it's linda we're worried about you i look down and i can see a man is laying on the ground initially linda thinks that she sees the body of her best friend judy and her husband wayne but this is when she realizes she is staring at scott and erica's bodies along with their two children she immediately phones 911 911 uh, there's been a murder. There's three people dead that I can see right now. Inside? I just came up. She works with me. Inside the house? Yes. What do you see? There's a baby and a man and a woman, and she's my best friend. And this is your best friend? Well, you know, looking at the person, that the woman is dead out there, I'm not sure it's Judy. There's no light in that room. When investigators arrive, they find the bodies of Scott and Erica Anderson. They have both been brutally gunned down. Along with Scott and Erica, they find three-year-old Nathan still clinging to his mother's body. Sadly, beneath Erica's body, they also find five-year-old Olivia. It seems as though Olivia was huddled behind her mother's body in hopes of some safety. Sadly, she didn't find that. It fucking kills me, by the way, guys, to tell you about murders of children. It takes a really sick and twisted human being to do that. This is when investigators realize in total there are four victims that have been brutally gunned down. But why? And who did it? There was very little sign of struggle. Uh, Scott Anderson had taken his boots off and they were lying at the, at the foot of the couch. And so it wasn't as if somebody had been ambushed when they walked in. Initially, investigators only think that they have four victims. That is when they discover the two bodies of Wayne and Judy in a shed behind the house. While we're in the, the squad car, the police radio comes on and they used a, a something like, he said something like L6 or something like that. And the detective immediately moved to turn off the radio. And I said, they found more bodies, didn't they? And he says, yes. He says, this is the worst murder case I have ever been on. I just cried. The day after Christmas, when Pamela should be preparing for New Year's, she gets a phone call about her daughter, Erica. A phone call that no mother should ever have to receive. The thought of my daughter 
walking in there thinking she's, you know, going to her in-laws. Everybody's having a great time. She was in a wonderful mood, and it's just, like, so shocking. You can't, you can't digest it or get it through your head that these people, are, you're not going to see them again because they were just here, you know? Initially, investigators have no clue who could do something so heinous, especially not in a town where their biggest crimes often just deal with theft. However, it would be three hours later when Michelle and Joseph pull up to the house that would begin to uh, maybe make officers think that they might be on to some suspects. Okay, picture this. You pull up to your family's home and you see a slew of police. You're going to ask them what happened. Maybe is somebody hurt? Are, is my family okay? Can, can somebody tell me what's going on? I'm just saying you're going to have some questions. But <laughs> not Michelle and Joseph. They, they didn't have any questions. They didn't ask if anyone was okay. They didn't seem to be phased. Obviously, this raises officers' suspicions immediately. He and Michelle met online and they both had the same interests in, I guess it would be called the occult, I don't know, uh, but in, in the darker side of lives. Investigators begin to question Michelle and Joseph. Michelle tells them that they decided to go ahead and elope, so they just were like, fuck it, let's go ahead and go to Vegas, all right, let's go now. Well, on the way, wouldn't you know, they get turned around somehow and just decide, okay, this is too much, we're gonna go home and just, you know, check on the family, see what they're up to. Michelle tells authorities that the last time she saw her parents was on Christmas Eve, you know, before they decided to go and get married in Vegas. I just want to share something. I find it very interesting that they said they were going to go get married. See, when you're married, you don't have to testify or use any confidential communications between the two during your marriage in any criminal or civil proceedings. Now, obviously, not everything is confidential and you can be forced to testify, but in most cases, you don't have to testify against your spouse. So I find that very interesting. But again, you know, they got lost and uh, they decided to come home, so they didn't get married. So, you know, they can testify against each other if they'd like. It didn't take long uh, for two very seasoned homicide investigators to uh, uncover in their conversations with them that they were responsible for the homicides. When detectives ask Michelle why she thought maybe authorities were at her house, she completely broke down. Michelle tells detectives, quote, It's not Joe's fault. It's my fault. And as soon as I shot the gun, I felt so bad. Like, what the hell have I done? I'm a monster. Yet, you know, she continued. The detective asked why had the children been killed? And she explained that they would have been scarred for life after seeing what had happened to their parents. So... This was the best for them. Clearest information that we received from her uh, in the course of her three or four hour conversation with, with the detectives was that she was she was upset uh, with her brother Scott. She is then asked why she felt the need to wipe out her family. Michelle tells detectives that she's quote tired of everybody stepping on her. She says that her brother Scott owed her about forty thousand dollars and refused to pay her back. She also said that this added to stress because her parents had begun asking her to start paying rent for the trailer that her and Joseph were living on on her parents' property. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, God, you, you're being asked to pay rent? Oh, no. But it's not just that. They had lived there for a year completely free of charge. 
So with the mix of, you know, having to pay rent like a responsible adult of 29 years old, and with apparently Scott refusing to pay her back with this money that he lent her, she was pretty angry. And often, as it is, investigators realize that money is the motive in this brutal crime. By both accounts, Michelle took a shot at her dad in the living room while, while Joe was keeping her mother occupied so that she wouldn't see it. And uh, it would appear that Michelle missed. And that's when Joseph McEnroe put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. After Wayne Anderson was killed and lied, was lying on the floor, they turned the guns on his wife, Judy. And she, by both accounts, she begged them not to do so. When questioned about how long Michelle had been planning these murders, she said that she had decided two weeks before that she would kill her family and asked Joseph if he'd help her. The absolute terror. I mean, she jumped over the damn sofa with three bullets in her and grabbed the phone to call 911. Hello? After Michelle and Joseph's confessions, which went on for nearly two hours and detailed who killed who, the two were arrested on the spot. Michelle then led detectives to where her and Joseph had discarded of the two guns in the still Aguamish River. On December 28, 2007, Michelle and Joseph were each charged with six counts of aggravated murder. Two were dissatisfied with the fact that Wayne and Judy Anderson seemed to like her brother Scott more than they liked Michelle. And as petty as that may sound, that was the reason why Michelle Anderson told those detectives that she and her boyfriend went up and killed six people the day before Christmas. In a tear-filled jailhouse interview with Michelle where she was the one crying, she states that she feels horrible for killing six members of her family on that Christmas Eve. And she claimed that it was years of physical and emotional abuse that led to her to snap. And that is a quote. Now, she said she felt bad for the killings, but she also offered an explanation. She said, I don't care what people say about violence and morality. Everyone has a breaking point. Michelle said that she grew up being told that her family had wished she was never born. Now, to which she says, quote, I told them to stop or I would snap, and they knew what I meant. They just pushed me too far. I just, I don't know why they had to push me so hard. In this same interview, she said that she was trying to plead guilty to six counts of aggravated first-degree murder for months. However, a requirement in state law makes it impossible for her to do so because the King County prosecuting attorney was still currently deciding whether to seek the death penalty against her and Joseph. She went on to say that she desperately wants to plead to court and say that she takes acceptance for the slayings and that death is the only fair punishment. She says, quote, I'm a different kind of person. Life in prison is not enough punishment for me. I want the most severe punishment, which would be the death penalty. I think if I kill a bunch of people, I'm not sure I deserve to live. I want to waive my trial. Now, seven and a half years after the murder, Joseph would finally stand trial. After a day and a half of deliberation, the jury finds him guilty. She had a lot of anger and a lot of hatred and she thought that the best way to act on that would be to go off and kill people. I was really her attack dog when this stuff happened. I did because I thought I had to. And yeah, I know that's not a very good excuse, but I'm not trying to excuse myself. I'm just trying to explain my actions. 
Now, murder is one of the few charges in Washington state that is eligible for the death penalty. His defense attorneys during his sentencing trial paint Joseph as a mentally ill man. So I went and um, moved Judy Faust. I put a bag of all red because I couldn't look at all because of see the emptiness. Well, uh, she should be. Prosecution and the Anderson family believe how Joseph acts on the stand and the way he's coming across is all an act to keep from being given the death penalty. Whatever. Could care less what he has to say. I am not impressed with him at all. And in what is probably the most heartbreaking moments in this trial is when Joseph describes Nathan, the three-year-old little boy, his final moments of life. Yeah, Ashley showed held up the phone battery and showed it to me like he understood and accepted what was going on. He handed the batteries to that monster and, and he shot him. That's not a man. He's just a monster. The jury came back split with eight to four and it was in favor of death. Because of this, he was instead sentenced to life without parole. Should he have gotten the death penalty? <sighs> Judy and I had talked about the death penalty. And we believe that God should do the judging, not us. And so I don't, I don't actually, to be honest, I would, I would prefer to be dead than in jail the rest of my life. Now in Joseph's trial, he didn't show a lot of emotion when he went on the stand. This is why it was very suspicious during his sentencing that all of a sudden he had very emotional reactions and he was claiming to be mentally ill. I'm not saying the man is not mentally ill at all. I'm just stating that even the family and prosecution find that his demeanor and actions and everything, the change and the shift, is just, it's a bit convenient. You guys did hear snippets from when he was on the stand, and it is very apparent that he is disturbed and upset. He even lashed out in court, stating, you know what, fuck it, if you want to kill me, go ahead, kill me, I don't care. He was also eventually told that, I think we've established none of these murders would have happened without you. To which Joseph said, unfortunately, that is completely true. Yes. So because the jury could not unanimously agree on the death penalty, on May 13th, 2015, Joseph was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In regards to Joseph, Pam, Erica's mother said, quote, he has no respect for anyone. He had no respect for the two people that were the kindest to him, which were Wayne and Judy, who took him in and he shot them and threw them in the backyard. I have nothing to say about him. I'm going to agree here with her. I believe that he is an absolute monster. He looked Nathan, Olivia, Erica, Scott, Judy, and Wayne all in the eyes and still took their lives. Now he might have remorse and he might feel bad and you know what? That's fine. I understand you have remorse. I understand the feeling of remorse, but that doesn't mean that anybody has to forgive him. Because in the end, six people are dead and their lives were brutally ripped from them. And he had a hand in that. And good morning, folks. Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. O'Toole. If you wouldn't mind putting the caption on the record, sir. I don't mind talking on it, thank you. This is the matter of the state of Washington versus Michelle Anderson. The case number is 071-08717-2. Seattle, Ms. Anderson is present this morning in court with her counsel. My name is Scott O'Toole, and along with Michelle Morales, we appear on behalf of the state. 
As a result of the outcome of Joseph's trial, King County Prosecutor Dan Saderberg announced that Michelle would not face the death penalty. He said, to proceed with the death penalty against defendant Anderson in light of the sentence imposed on defendant McEnroe would not be in the interest of justice. How about they both just get the death penalty? That's all I'm saying. Let's just make it fair. Okay, there we go. Eye for an eye. Anywho's, that's not how the justice system works, and uh, she went to trial. On January 25th, 2016, Anderson's trial began. In his opening statements, O'Toole stated that the motive for these murders is pure, unadulterated greed. He said this in reference to an interview that Anderson had with a detective in which she brought up money more than 35 times in her explanation as to why she killed her family. Uh, let me address uh, defense counselor. Are you ready to proceed with sentencing this morning, folks? Yes, sir. All right, thank you. Towards the end of Michelle's trial, she had an outburst in which she yelled at the judge telling him that she was going to file charges against her court-appointed attorneys, whom she was convinced had been lying to her. You see, she had wanted to temporarily leave jail, you know, like one of those get-out-of-jail-free cards, and find her own private counsel, but she was not granted permission to do so. I wonder why. However, for this, she blamed the judge, who she said was, quote, violating her rights. I'm so tired of murderers feeling like their rights are violated. Shut up. Anywho, um, Michelle's attorney did not call any witnesses to stand during her trial, which was probably in his best interest, citing how difficult it would have been, refusing to cooperate or communicate with so many people for years before her trial that he just couldn't do it. So apparently it was in the best interest that nobody came to her aid. On March 4th, 2016, Michelle, just like Joseph, was convicted of six counts of aggravated murder in the first degree. Thank you very much. Uh, and Ms. Anderson, the law requires that I address you at this point in time. You're not required to say anything at all if you don't want to. But if there's anything you'd like to tell me before we proceed with sentencing, now's the time to do it. So is there anything you'd like to say, ma'am? No, thank you, Your Honor. On April 21st, 2016, Michelle was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, just like Joseph. During the sentence hearing, several members of the Anderson family and Erica's mother addressed Michelle. Pam Mantle said, quote, I don't think you're big and tough, Michelle. I think you're a bully and a coward. I am brokenhearted. Every day I miss those six people. Michelle's older sister, Mary, said to Michelle, quote, It kills me. I loved you so much. Just know they loved you. And in case I'm not getting the pain across from this family, here it is in their own words. Oh, Michelle, I want you to know that we loved you so much. You know the truth? You destroyed me. And look what you've done to your life. Do you, do you care? What you did to our family. Your brother loved you so much. You have a lot of time to think about it. And I don't know I'm done with you. It kills me. I loved you so much. This brings us to the end of the case. I would love to know what you guys think of this case. Do you think that Joseph and Michelle truly saw justice? Do you truly believe that life in prison without the possibility of parole is enough for people that brutally killed six of their family? Two of which were only five and three. 
So as always, send me a message on what you think about this case or any others that you have. This episode was a listener recommendation, and I just want to say thank you to Chelsea, who lives in Maine. Thank you so much for being a longtime listener. I adore you so much, and I truly appreciate you, and thank you for writing in a case. So again, thank you so much, Chelsea. I had heard a little bit about this case, but I did not know near as much as I found out when I dug into it, and that's all thanks to your email. Now to all of the others who have sent in cases, don't worry, I promise I will get to your case or you may be featured on a future episode with multiple other cases as some of these cases just don't have enough information out there for a full episode. As always, you too can send an email in at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. If you've made it this far in the episode, you have reached the end. There is no more about the case beyond here, so to anyone who doesn't want to hear anything like my thank yous and I appreciate yous, this is where you can go ahead and stop and not miss anything. To anyone else that wants to stay for a moment, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for coming here every week and listening to this podcast. If you support me on any other social media, thank you for that as well. I've recently become a influencer for a company and realized that a lot of people do follow my life and follow the content that I create. I don't always have the time to tell anyone thank you or let you know of my appreciation, so I feel in doing that in my content is the best way that I can. So this is for you. I love you, I appreciate you, and I see you. I couldn't be doing any of this without you, and I will never forget that. Now enough of that mushy stuff. I will talk to you next time on the next episode of What the Actual F. Sweet screams. I love you. Stay safe. Goodbye, guys.